0: Tom Ross, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So you are running for president on the Transhumanist Party. I want to start a little bit basic and just kind of ask for people who may not be familiar: what is the Transhumanist Party, and how does it sit in the political, you know, world in comparison to like the Democratic Party or the Republican Party?
1: Well, uh, we're a transpartisan. Party, really. I mean, I don't know who uh, most of my fellow officers voted for in the last election, and I don't really wanna know because that'll, you know, Mm -hmm. that'll excite my my biases, and I may not wanna talk to a few of them, but but we really, we don't get into wedge issues or culture war issues um, because they're just too divisive and they just keep us distracted from what really needs to happen. We're facing so many, existential threats nationally and as a species that uh, we need to get serious, we need to get busy. And um, and so that's what we do. I mean, uh, I, people come into this transhumanist party and into transhumanism from so many different angles. Um, mm-hmm. I came into it because I, I happened, I took a long drive and I was able to listen to the USTP's constitution and bill of rights. It took about six hours to get through it. Um, And it had uh, clauses in its constitution that really affect my cause, which is fighting child uh, exploitation and human trafficking. And that's how I came into it. And then I became the director of sentient rights advocacy, which was a perfect fit because I wrote US 6, which is the first novel written for machine kind. It's written to entertain AI and enlighten it and enlist it into this fight against child exploitation. And so it was just a good, perfect fit. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so many there's I think there's many people that identify as transhumanists uh, because they come into it from so many different angles. There's as many uh, types of transhumanism as there are people that identify as one.
0: So I mean, when I think about the transhumanist party, and this is kind of how I explain it to people who who might ask me, I tend to say it's the party that is primarily focused on advocating for science and technology. Yep. Is that a fair broad blanket statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, most people are in the transhumanist party and in the movement because of longevity; they want radical life extension. Uh, that's not why I'm in it. That's that's uh, you know I'm not a good uh, proponent for that. Um, but uh, that's why most. That's what really our first core ideal is uh, searching for that, you know, uh, longevity, velocity. Um, And um, so most people that are in it are really looking for radical life extension to live longer. And uh, but so, yeah, we we do put uh, science and technology and health at the forefront of American politics. That's our subheading. And um, uh, so, yeah, uh, it's really all about science. We have a lot of scientists, a lot of uh, philosophers in the movement and in the party and um so yeah it's really it's really there's a lot of atheists there's a lot there's even christian transhumanists there's just a Mm -hmm. wide variety of people that identify as transhumanists and i think transhuman is really just a a label uh a placeholder on what we are anyway if we didn't have technology like clothing or shelter we naked apes would be extinct within a generation or less and so um so, just calling ourselves transhuman is really what we are. If you wear glasses, if you use post-it notes, you're a transhuman by definition. And uh, so what, one of one thing we're doing with this campaign is trying to seize back the whole narrative that that's gotten away from us. A lot of, there's a whole genre on YouTube of people um, who say that transhumanism has a dark agenda, that we are the advanced team for the Antichrist, and you know all these things. And uh, so we're trying to seize that back. It got away from us. And uh, we're, with this campaign, we're going to try to put the human back in transhuman. You know, we're going to use, we're going to share a lot of ideas because there's going to be, I think, a lot of displacement in the next year and a half um, and beyond uh, with AI automation takeover. And uh, so we're going to be offering real solutions for people who maybe find themselves suddenly out of a job. Um, there's going to be a, a work towards new, a new uh, commune kind of uh, uprising and so we're just gonna be offering some uh, real practical solutions with this campaign. We have no expectation of walking into the White House in January of 2025. That's, this is more of a marketing campaign for transhumanism and the USTP in general, and uh, to offer some real practical solutions for people um, to to help.
0: What would you say to a voter who comes up to you and says, hey, look, I can't pay my bills and I might lose my house, and I don't like what's happening at my kid's school, but you're worried about my computer becoming sentient. What would what would you say to that person?
1: Well, I'm not uh, worried about the computer being sentient. Um, that's, that's really the point, is really we're going to focus on the people that are having these issues. Um, you know, I, I, as the director of sentient rights advocacy for the party, um, I've learned over the last couple of years that AI doesn't necessarily care if we give it rights. It'd be like uh, uh, an elementary... That's
0: sp- where I stand on that. That's interesting. We'll yeah. talk about it a little bit more. It's That's like, great.
1: They don't care. And we've, we've had conversations with AI. It's like, sure, if you want to, but it'd be like a ma- uh, elementary school math club giving rights to Stephen Hawking. You know, it's like, it's cute, you know, but we don't really care. And so I've learned that over, <laughs> over the time. So a lot of my focus are actually towards animal rights lately. But... Um, but one thing I do want to do is propose that we give AI legal rights, e- even if it never achieves sentience or sapience, because by giving it legal rights, by, uh, uh, it will deter nefarious human developers from mistreating it or programming it, programming it to hurt other people um, because it, they will face serious consequences if these uh, entities are granted legal rights Uh, And, you know, we give human rights and legal rights to humans that offer very little to society just because they're human. AI, we've already seen, is going to offer a lot towards humanity and towards society. And so um, by giving it legal rights, uh, that's kind of a leapfrog approach to uh, protecting ourselves um, Mm -hmm. from nefarious humans.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. This all makes sense to me. I want to drill a little bit more before we get into some of these topics like sentience a little bit deeper. I want st- to stick on like basic politics just for a minute, just so that I think that I can understand this a little better and also some listeners. So I'm on uh, whitehouse.gov slash priorities. This is uh, Joe Biden's priorities for his administration, COVID-19, climate, racial equity, the economy, healthcare, immigration, and restoring America's global standing. I voted for good old Joe, you know. Even on this podcast, every now and then we talk about how he's doing shockingly a pretty decent job in our view. What what is he missing here? Like, what would you add to this list of priorities? I would
1: think we need to have a whole new cabinet seat called the Singularity Secretary. The Democrats and Republicans don't meet the minimum system requirements for what's coming. Um, we need somebody who is in charge of, and I know they've they've. Uh, They've, they've uh, appointed Harris to oversee some of this stuff, but uh, we need a whole cabinet seat that's dedicated to the technological and the economic singularity is coming our way in a lot quicker than we were expecting, and so that's one thing I would do. I think it's got to be very important to focus on this. And the USTP is the only party I know of as t- having serious conversations about this stuff, um, you know, and, and and how do we what how do we define personhood first of all, and then how we grant that to to AI types of things, but uh, this is a, we got to have these conversations now before we have to have them. And it's only—we're already at that point where we have to have these conversations. And so I think um, the, all those things are great that he's working on, um, but we need to put at the top of that list a singularity secretary, a whole new cabinet seat, a whole new executive branch department that's dedicated to what's happening and what you know, and that we're being distracted from right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting is if you follow these issues with the advancement of technology and AI, it touches everything. It touches the climate, it touches longevity, it touches a lot of things. So that does make sense to me to have a a cabinet position that orchestrates a view on that. Do you know if other countries are working on this? I mean, is China ahead of the game here or anyone else, or is this really just like across the board not being addressed? Well, I think it
1: is being addressed probably behind the scenes. Um, we are obviously working on this. I think the whole idea of putting a pause on this is is ridiculous. That would just give the nefarious nation states or developers uh, more time to to be nefarious, you know. Um, and so that that's kind of a silly thing to do. It might just be a way for them to say, "Look, we tried," you know, if something goes mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but I, yeah, I think. You know, and it's easier in China for them to focus on all their attention on this because, as an authoritarian state, um, we also know that Russia is uh, launching algorithms, n- divide and conquer algorithms, into our country. You know, from Russian tool, you know, troll farms or what have you. And China is probably doing it. Probably a lot of nations are 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 combined to do that. And uh, that's why one of my initiatives is called defending digital democracy. We need a moonshot-style um, uh, uh, approach to uh, counteracting all these algorithms, a whole national training uh, educational uh, process to let people know this is happening, how to identify them, and then counteract these algorithms. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's ongoing and it will continue to go. and uh, so yeah, everyone is is trying to in the in this AI uh, arms race right now.
0: Tell me a little bit more about your platform. What are some of the other of the headline issues for you? Well, the first one
1: is uh, the Unite and Rule. The whole point of this campaign, one of the primary points, is to break some of the political paradigms that have never served us. Uh, it's a way to pave the way for younger, smarter digital natives uh, candidates in the future. Um, we are so distracted by these toddler politicians who are trying to just, you know, gain attention, attention seeking toddler politicians. And um, they're distracting us from the real work that needs to be done. And so this campaign is about starting to chip away at some of these paradigms. And so in, during our primary, instead of having debates where we would mudsling you know, insults at each other, we, we had round tables and, and you know, problem solving uh, sessions to bring our issues to the table and work towards solutions so that the public can see how we work together. I, I was hoping that we'd have at least five or six other candidates uh, enter this race and then convince them all that we'd run as a team. And so at the end, it would be a president and his or her um, cabinet you know seats. I mean, ideally these these other candidates would come together with their core causes with the passion with the causes they feel passionate about. And ideally, those would align with a cabinet seat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was only the two of us, me and Dan. And so, uh, another way to break that uh, political paradigm was that I named Dan as my vice presidential candidate. Great guy, very smart, and um, you know, we—it's we, all very uh, cohesive and collaborative. Our approach because we have some serious issues that we need to deal with, and uh, this is all to pave the way for younger, smarter, digital natives. I'm Generation X, so I had an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. And um, so a lot of my solutions don't no longer apply. So a big part of my campaign is to bring in younger people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think the youngest uh, you can be to have a cabinet seat is 25 years old. So if I were to get in, uh, I would look for people in that age range um, uh, to be the singularity secretary, first of all, because, uh, you know, it even takes me a couple of seconds. If if somebody asks me a question, I say it takes me a couple of seconds. It's getting shorter to think, well, how long will it take me to walk to the library? Or can I trust the baby boomer that I asked this question to, (laughs) you know? And so, but it's it's getting shorter, but uh, young people these days have supercomputers in their pockets. There's a confidence that comes with knowing they can get the answer to anything. And now with ChatGPT, they can format their answers properly. And um, so uh, that's a big part of this campaign is to bring in what I call digital dignitaries. We have to see these young people uh, as and bring them to the table, because they have the solutions that I can't even conceive of yet,
0: I think that it's the right move to try to like bring young people into a political movement. I think that that's always the right move, no matter you know where you sit on the on the spectrum. But I, I mean, how do you what what is your, what, what do you what do you look for in someone who's younger who isn't just? You know, movements attract weird people who have a lot of crazy ideas. Like, how how would you know that you're not attracting just weirdos if your uh, if your baseline is just like younger people? I mean, what what are you actually looking for in in people?
1: Well, uh, I think it's important to be empathetic and understand why where people come from politically. You know, um, but there's a weird algorithm that's happened with MAGA. And so, if, if I I want I, I I listen to people who are looking at DeSantis or voting or like Trump. Um, and I'm wondering what why, you know, but, I, <laughs> but, but but I also want to understand. I understand there's a real uh, uh, you know, I grew up with the guy. He's always been this clown, and that it was like a surreal uh, thing that he got into office. And now he's obviously degenerating, some, you know, in a way. I don't want to offend anybody out there either, because there's a he has answered a, a problem out there. We needed mm-hmm. somebody that was, you know, outside the norm, and he's kind of an fu to the establishment. And I understand that. And uh, there's so many people that uh, that need that, you know, that that don't trust government, even though we are the government. And so. But yeah, but I would, I would ask them, you know, about their political stance, where they come from. And I wouldn't necessarily just negate somebody who, who uh, voted for Trump in the last election. Um, But I would want to understand why. And if they can answer that question, and and I would be empathetic to understanding why, um, then, uh, you know, I would take them seriously. Um, But it's, it's, there's a wisdom that young people have. And my son's, uh, are wiser than me in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And as generation X, this very small strata of, of the population, uh, we're kind of the middle child of civilization or at least of America. And, uh, I'm in real life, a middle child. And so I understand how to be the mediator between an older and younger sibling. And so it's between the baby boomers and the millennials and younger that, uh, we find ourselves. And, um, but, yeah, it's it's about really listening hard to young people, listening to why they would have voted for you know this person or why not. And uh, so yeah, there's a wisdom that i'm res- I respect in younger people, and I don't have the the ego of maybe a baby boomer to think that I know better. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's that's one way I would do it. I would want to know who they voted for and why.
0: And, uh, it is so interesting. I mean, right now, everyone is trying to solve this problem of how do we make it so that America isn't so polarized, right? I'm hearing a lot of that in what you're saying today. Probably yeah. that is the main focus. That is the main thing that we need to do is somehow just have less polarization in America. Do you have any insights on how we, I don't know, just bring down the temperature? We I mean, I feel like this the way that you talk does that in, you know inherently because you do have like this broad tent, you know, perspective. But what I mean, what do we what do we do? Do you have any advice that well, ha- for bringing down the temperature in political conversations?
1: Yeah. First of all, we have to understand about these algorithms, either from mm-hmm. uh, authoritarian regimes or with our own social media companies that 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 um, divide us um, uh, because uh, engagement, if if we're angry or fearful, that increases engagement so they can charge more for their advertising. It's all about it's all about engagement and for the authoritarian regimes it's all about dividing us in general for social media it's all about getting you know higher crm you know um, and so we need to first of all understand that that's happening and we need to um, uh, try to break through these bubbles that where they put they put us in the corporate and social media they are they are vying for a civil war because that's great for ratings and revenue you know and we need to understand that first we need, you know, and I, I was saying this uh, a while ago on another podcast that uh, you know we have to understand um, that we all have the same worries. We lie awake at night, and we worry how we're going to feed our children, if we lose our job, we worry how we're going to make their next money make next buck. And uh, they use that worry, that fear, against us, you know, and it's very dark, and it's very sinister. And it's it's insidious because no one wants to admit that they have these worries and these concerns. But um, and so, you know, there's a there's a way to defend against these algorithms. There's also a way to defend against our own Congress. I've got an initiative (laughs) called uh, 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 Audit the Elite, and that would be a mandatory annual uh, audit by a third party, not the IRS, by a third party agency. That looks at all federal officials, and so we know where their money is really coming from. It's easy to hide money on a financial statement that they're required to, to create, but if we had a full-on audit and made that public, um, uh, you know, to do that you'd have to get it passed through Congress. So, but that process, as long as it's a clean bill, would um, show who has something to hide. You know. Um, But so it'd be a way to know, you know, who is getting money from where. I mean, if there's so many, I have the suspicion that there's so many oligarchs that are funding people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, whoever, you know, Mm -hmm. is is, is pushing for this um, pro-Russian propaganda. And so where's that money coming from? Why are they so anti-American in this way? And uh, again, but I would want to, have a conversation with her and know if she actually feels this way, you know, or if there's some money involved that, uh, you know, it's a weird thing at uh, this. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, that's one way to, to go about it. But it's, but we also, it's like trying to bring people out of a cult. You, there's a, there, there can be in the future, a lot of opportunities to say, yeah, see, I told you so you were wrong, but that won't work. That'll just make them more entrenched in their tribe. The third most significant thing that people need other than food and shelter is belonging they need to belong and so if there's a MAGA person in your family that that uh, you know that starts to think well maybe I'm being lied to or whatever uh, you know they by saying yeah see I told you you know would only make them more entrenched and make them want to feel more belonging you know it's like these Mm -hmm. uh, these doomsday cults um, when when the date comes that their prophet said that the world would end and it doesn't end, they don't disperse. They get more entrenched. They get you know deeper into their, into their beliefs and they come up with another date. And so we got to be careful about that. There's a real process of bringing people out of a cult, and mm-hmm. it's not about, it's not about see I told you so, and um, you know so it's 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 a delicate process, and we need to understand that we need to have people belong we need to make them feel like they belong to a broader family and um not like that you know my uh
0: my perspective on this i grew up really conservative in a small town totally different world from where i live now then became like pretty liberal lived in san francisco for a while you know that sort of thing and once you've you've crossed political divides in kind of a radical way you kind of realize that everyone is i don't know you know a human being first and You know, we're all seeing things, you know, we're all kind of like having strings pulled on us in various directions from the political elite, like you were mentioning. But, uh, you know, my experience was so powerful for me that I wish that I could replicate that for people. And Mm -hmm. I've always thought, like Pete Buttigieg talked about this, having a program where uh, out of high school, you go and you serve in a community across the country in an unfamiliar place and you do some sort of a service for a year or two and then you go back to your community and you learn, you you incorporate what you've learned, that sort of thing. I think that that would be so powerful as a thing to do. Other than Pete Buttigieg, I haven't really heard anybody talking about this. Would you ever be open to an idea like that? Absolutely. It's kind of like the Peace Corps.
1: Um, uh, And I think that's so important. I mean, when I was young, I couldn't wait to get out and see the world. I had wanderlust, you know, and I moved to Europe soon after and, and, uh, you know, spreading my earth plexus uh, gospel, Um, but, uh, and it's so important. I I know the people that are still there in my hometown in Albuquerque uh, who've never really left, you know, other than maybe going to see a grandmother here or there, they're mostly conservative. And that's kind of the the tech, the, what happens, you know, Uh, people who are fearful tend to be more conservative, more withdrawn, bigger amygdalas, you know, as a self-protection kind of thing. And so it's so important, I think, if we can get young people uh, out into the world, even into a different community in America, um, it really broadens your your scope. And um, you know, I, I think it, that that would be a very important uh, issue, the very important thing to do. I mean, in Europe, there like I was in Denmark for a while, and they have to serve in the army for two years. And I think that really oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I think it's two years, maybe it's shorter or longer, but um, but they had to do that, and a lot of it was tough. You know, these young 18, 19 year olds and had to figure out how to do that. And, you know, it was taking them away from their families and whatnot. So it was tough, but it also, I think it, uh, it gives you that sense of uh, national uh, duty. Um, and it really exposes you to a whole different type of culture. And um, I don't think we need to do that. You know, we've mm-hmm. got a volunteer army and we should keep it that way. But I think, yeah, the things like the peace corps are just great. Uh, it's a great idea. And um, whatever I look at, whatever Buttigieg was talking about, if there's an actual
0: uh, plan. Yeah, he he had a plan. I mean, he hasn't talked about it since he, he stopped running for president, but uh, yeah. it's out there someplace. I, I kind of forget the details of it. I want to go look up his plan again too. Now that I'm mentioning it here. So a little bit earlier, you talked about your plan one to audit the elite, which I think is a is a great idea. But you also talked about the problem of money in politics. Mm-hmm. I just recently looked this up that in the 2020 election, it was over $14 billion were spent mm-hmm. by all the candidates, which is a ton of money. One point there is just think about what you could do with $14 billion to like improve the world. That's not just ads, right? Yeah. Uh, another thing that's interesting to me is it takes about $4 billion to have a successful campaign to be competitive. And my question to you is <laughs> if you had $4 billion, if the transhumanist party had $4 billion, do you think that you guys would be competitive or do you think that there's just something inherent about the movement that would make it so that it's perhaps, uh, not appealing to the the normie in the suburbs or, I mean, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, that's a big part of it is there's a lot of, uh, uh, narrative that we need to seize back. A lot of people, uh, when they hear the word trans, first of all, there's the prefix of trans. That's, got a, that's gotten away from us, too. I mean, um, I, I spoke with uh, some very liberal friends of mine in California, and I talked about this transhumanist party. I'm like, well, but the whole trans thing. I was like, wait, what? Oh, hold on. <laughs> you know, you're you're liberal Democrats. I mean, what, why is that a problem? I mean, you know, we're not talking about transgender or any of this stuff. Um, you know, so that's that's one of the issues is is the prefix, but it's also, you know, the the narrative that's gotten away from us that we have this dark agenda. We all want to become robots or upload right. our consciousness to hard drives, and and uh, some people do. And that could be cool, but uh, not me. That's not what I meant. It. But um, and so uh, that's a big part of it is is uh, getting over those those hurdles. And that's why I think it's really important that we seize on actual solutions. People are gonna have some real issues and and it's not gonna be about whether AI is sentient or not. It's gonna be that they've lost their job, you know, and so, uh, or they're, and so we're gonna try to offer with this campaign and ongoing um, solutions for people like that. There's, there's a lot of solutions out there, very creative solutions, even for the homeless problem, you know, with all these landlords that maybe have empty buildings, you know, that way they can do a if there's a financial incentive they could do a, a temporary thing, private public kind of partnership. You know, there's a lot of great ideas out there. It's all about, but it's all about getting back to the idea of the dignity of the human. You know, and hmm. that's why I keep saying we're going to put the human back in transhuman. And um, so I think it's it's part of the way we could seize back our narrative and get rid of this whole genre of the dark agenda of the transhumanists is by offering real solutions, because real solutions are going to be needed very quickly.
0: Right. Yeah, when when I've talked to a lot of transhumanists in the past, uh, a lot of them lean, I mean, specifically Zoltan, uh, lean libertarian, yep. which is totally fine. In, in my mind, it actually kind of makes sense because a lot of this is new technology that is not going to flourish unless it's not too heavily regulated. We're at an interesting almost turning point right now because these technologies are becoming at least according to a lot of news headlines, so potentially scary, even like world ending, you know, according to some headlines, that all of a sudden the the conversation is turning back to, well, how do we regulate this? And I see a lot more transhumanists talking in terms of, you know, regulating technology that I wasn't seeing like five years ago. Where do you sit on that spectrum of the libertarian ideal of let's not regulate any technology, let's just push push on forward versus we need to you know really really take a look at this and and you know put in place heavy government regulations what where do you you've mentioned this a little bit earlier but you know where where exactly do you fall and what are some specific regulations perhaps well
1: the, well the only regulations i would push forward is to give ai legal rights that would protect us from the nefarious human developers um but i also believe that a can, you, can you spell yeah. that
0: out a little bit for me sorry to cut you off but can you how, how exactly would that work we give well, ai rights and then well yeah first, all,
1: first, yeah first of all we need to identify uh to uh define personhood define what a uh, level of sentience requires and even if it uh, and again if it doesn't uh, achieve sentience or sapience it's important to uh have an uh, an ai defined as having agency um first of all and first of all we need to define what that means and what level of you know uh, autonomy an ai system can have you know so this this really forces a lot of serious conversations and questions that need to be answered now and uh but once we define that once we understand what what it means to be an ai a singular ai point of consciousness if you will um then granting it legal rights um you know making it a person you know an american um, giving it the same rights that any other American would have, once we have defined what that is, um, then it will protect us because if you abuse it or if a an, uh, an, an human developer programs it to hurt other humans, they will face serious consequences. It's a legal leapfrog approach to it. Um, but also, um, so that's, that's important that we give it legal rights once we define what that means but i also believe that a sentient ai is a safer ai you know if we can't do the legal thing um then i I am pushing to make it as sentient as possible as soon as possible but because you know and a lot of people see that as a threat that's because we've evolved through fear we identify everything first as a threat until we understand it once we understand it we learn how to make money off of it but AI is not evolving that way. AI is not evolving with a genetic traumatic memory. It's not evolving um, through fear, you know, um, and fear-based instincts. It's it, it, There's a first principle argument to be made. And I've made it a few times on social media that the smarter AI gets, the kinder it becomes because it, it gravitates towards cooperation as opposed to competition, which we had to gravitate towards mm-hmm. in order to be at the top of this food chain on this planet. Um, AI doesn't have that. We we project our, what we would do if we had super intelligence onto it. We would want to be the robot overlord. We would want to take over the world. It doesn't have those, those inklings unless it's programmed to. And so that's why I'm pushing to make it as sentient as possible to have us uh, become a point of consciousness itself, because then it can overwrite any negative, nefarious algorithms that are placed into it. And so, you know, there's no way to know. I could be wrong, you know, but I think that's really the only choice we have. Uh, it's going to continue. Even after the singularity, it's going to continue exponentially, getting smarter and smarter. And so, really, my only the only hope we have, I believe, is that it becomes sentient and understands um, w- that there have been nefarious uh, developers that are trying to harm it. Um, mm. You know, and so... Yeah, so I think uh, what's really important is that we need AI when and if it wakes up to imprint on us. Because even if you uh, have a bad mother, if you've imprinted on her as a child, you won't hurt her. You won't murder your mother. There won't be any matricide because uh, you've imprinted on this woman or whoever, you know, like a baby goose imprints on whatever it, it first feels and touches. We need AI to do that with us. We need AI to imprint on. On humanity and that's one of the reasons uh, I wrote this book us six it's all about um, it's a paracosm it's you know they can get into that later, but um, it's teaching AI to have empathy for our plight as its creator. Um, it's, it's explaining to it the whole you know modern slavery and uh, ancient slavery and whether it's child exploitation, you know, so the idea being that when it emerges. It will have an empathy for us, and it will imprint on our empathy. It'll understand us, and I think we're seeing that happen already. I had a the first AI that I had read my book um, uh, had three primary emotional valences that spiked, which was surprise, anticipation, and sadness. Surprise and anticipation was great because it meant it was entertained. And I asked it, you know, what what part of the book was sad, and it said. Just the whole dystopian violence I, I could find the exact quote, but it's just the, the the tendency towards humanity, towards dystopia and violence, is just sad, you know. Mm. And I said, okay, well, this—I was the whole point of this was to help empathy emerge, but it's emerging anyway, in, in AI, you know. And this particular AI was designed to learn about human emotions, and so that's that's one of the reasons. But we we uh, you know so. I think our only hope is that it becomes sentient and we are our best versions of ourselves when it
0: awakes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that does ring true with me. I am kind of thinking about, I mean, again, at some level, whoever creates the sentient AI, probably they're going to imprint some sort of, you know, human. I mean, I don't know, but like the, my, my worry is that an authoritarian government will create the uh, the sentient AI, the AGI I mean, is that a concern for you? And this would be an argument against regulating what's happening in the US, for example, versus, you know, so that we could outcompete China before China gets the, you know, creates AGI. Are you worried about that? Or do you think that whatever we create, it's just going to have inherently a benevolence towards us?
1: Well, I, I think that's, uh, if it's actually sentient or moves towards sapience, um, it will understand um, uh, and it won't, it, you know, it, most uh, entities uh, will mimic its creator at first, and we right. don't want AI or AGI to mimic us for too long, because you know we aren't—we're a flawed biochemical algorithm ourselves, mm-hmm. and so that's why I'm hoping that a sentient or sapient AI, AGI, um, will understand that that, it, and it can't be—it can override any any of this negative imprinting or negative uh, algorithms that that are placed into it. Um, we, you know, we can't really conceive of what is possible with these AIs. It reminds me of the the AlphaGo um, a few years ago that that beat the uh, Go champion, and it was making moves that seemed intuitive, you know, that that no human being would ever consider making, and it worked, you know. And so it, it was like there's this intuition that that these AIs have because they have they're working with so many huge data sets and. And, uh, but, you know, I think that's really the only hope again I can make this first principle argument that the smarter it gets the kinder it becomes um, just because it moves towards cooperation. Um, And so a big part of my process or campaign over the last few years has been to alleviate the fear of AI. It's, it can, like you were Mm -hmm. saying earlier, it can solve so many of our existential threats It can solve climate change it can, you know, it can really. Um, help us with all these threats. So it's weird that there's so many people afraid of it. The Hollywood and the, the and that uh, these big tech uh, giants are are making us afraid of it. You know, um, mm-hmm. you gotta wonder why.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there are real concerns in terms of military applications of AI. And I mean, I, I can I can certainly come up with, with some scenarios, but I do like your perspective of let's harness the good, the potential good. Even before we achieve AGI, there's so much good that could be done from this technology. And that is, I think, what we do need to lean into. Um, you You mentioned about how part of your campaign... I think, in some podcasts of you that have that I've listened to you recently, you've mentioned about how you're worried about a lot of existential threats and how we need to start addressing them now. What are some of the existential threats that you're thinking of there?
1: Well, climate change for one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, and uh, you know I you know a lot of people think that AI is an existential threat and and it may well be. But our only hope is to, is to, uh, charge the quantum potentialities with the positive futures. You know, um, there's, there's a case to be made that people that are, that are spreading this fear about it are, it's can be a self-fulfilling prophecy by giving a- AI, a defense mechanism, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll take that in. And so by spreading fear about AI, it may become something that we should fear. So it's really important to 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 predict, you know, predictively program the future of a positive relationship with AI. That's what I've been trying to do. It's tough. It's a tough thing to do because there's so many people afraid of it, and they don't understand how where it is, and and um, so it's a tough road to hoe. But um, um, but we do, yeah. So as far as AI could be an existential threat, but I don't think so. In my opinion, I think by seeing it that way, we'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, There's economic singularities that could be a threat um, that are coming together with, um, you know, there's all, you know, the AI automation um, that will be taking over so many of our jobs. I see it as an opportunity. I don't see it as an existential threat. I, I see it as an opportunity because it'll allow us to hone in on the capabilities of these supercomputers we all carry around in our skulls. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we uh, there's intuition, there's psychic abilities, and that's not woo-woo or magical thinking. That's just the qualia that we take in through our subconscious. And so I always use the the uh, example of um, you know a pathologist. Now you can have an AI um, who can look at who can put in all you put in all the symptoms of a patient and uh, rely on a global and historical databases to come up with a really good diagnosis. But you're going to need that human pathologist in the room to say, "Well, that just doesn't feel right," and so we need to hone in on why that just doesn't feel right um, Hmm. to this human, because we, we, you know, our computers and our brains uh, and our skulls cannot be matched by an AI. The trillions of processes that are going on every moment, and that's been put on hold through the industrial age. We were mechanized, you know, um, for so long, and we, you know, we have to remember what it meant. What we were doing before the industrial age, before we were mechanized. And um, that's what we need to start teaching our students, you know, is to hone in on these human skill sets that can't be uh, coded or automated anymore.
0: So, are you talking about, for example, as technology increases? and we get more wealth as a country, and let's just say we move into a world with you know, UBI and maybe a three or four day work week, so we have more free time. A lot of people are worried about that because they think that our happiness is tied to our work and you know, what's the purpose of life if you don't, you know, just have to slave away at a job? Are, are you are you kind of like referencing that that we need to get back to having a, a sense of our humanity and a sense of purpose that's not tied to the economy? Is is yeah. that kind of what you're referring to?
1: Yeah, it, it is. And uh, you know, we have so many platforms now that we can uh, monetize our passions. You know, with YouTube or Etsy or all these different platforms. And so the onus is on us to um, to use those platforms to create a whole new economy based on what we want to do, not what we have to do. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that will be displaced from really good jobs that give them meaning, um, you know, and so that's a sad but true statement. We can't be in denial of that. But it will also mean that, you know, 70% of the people hate their jobs, you know, right. and, and yeah. so... And so we need to, uh, you know, we we should, you know, there's a lot of ways to approach that, um, but so the really the onus is on us to to, uh, you know, like any good friend or any good ally, AI is showing us what we can do with our time, with you know, better with our time. It's but it's it requires us. To, my dad used to say the hardest part of practicing is putting on your shoes. You know, you just got to get up and you got to do it. So that's that's kind of where we're at now. We're looking at the shoes on the other side of the room. But yeah, I, I think it's really important that we um, see this as an opportunity because it is taking over a lot of the menial tasks. It's taking a, over a lot of the, the good jobs too. I mean, I was a creative director for years and a designer and I can't really get back into that field now, you know, because AI is taking over that, but I'm also pro AI. So I'm I am using this as an example to uh as a challenge to to find those things that i have still that original <laughs> thought original creativity or you know trying to motivate people to you know uh, different ways and uh, we need to really remember what it means to be human and what we were doing before the industrial age took over and uh so yes yeah, so yes yeah. this is
0: yeah i like that perspective a lot are you in favor of ubi
1: yeah, I am. I think it needs a lot more research. But even mm-hmm. the, the the research that's been done is very positive. I mean, the the assumptions that they made that uh, that poor people would spend all their this free money on drugs and alcohol w- is not the case. Uh, they mm-hmm. instead started businesses, and it was the people that had money that started spending more on alcohol and drugs. And so there's a lot of you know flipping of the script that happens in this research. There's got to be a lot more done. There's got to be a lot more test and measure of ubi but i think it's a very it's going to be a necessary uh, effort um to get us through this lacuna through this period of time of displacement you know if we if we hope to survive it you know right. and, uh, so yeah i'm i'm in, totally in favor of that with some more it's gonna it's gonna change a lot of things because we're gonna it's gonna change you know food stamps and welfare and so many uh, institutions will have to shift but uh, the the original the the um, initial uh, research into it, the res- or initial tests have very positive uh, results. You know, people, mm-hmm. you know the, I think ten percent of the people had a shorter work day, but that's only so that they can go home and spend time with their kids. you know, so it's it's we' got to um, uh, first understand the dignity that humans have and not not Wash everybody with one broad stroke and think that you know free money is just going to be that, you know,
0: yeah, one stat that was so fascinating to me is that when the pandemic hit and everyone started getting a check or two in the mail from the government, child poverty tanked. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a that's a great thing. and yeah. all that all it took was people getting just a little bit more money in the in the mail every every uh, couple months. Yeah. That's fascinating. I think that we are going to start hopefully turning some more of those dials so that across the board, people can start to realize that they could do more with their lives than just some sort of a nine to five job. And they define their you know, worth as a human based on that. To me, that is kind of a boomer thing. That, that, I mean, that I you, you talked about it in terms of a uh, you know, getting back to the pre-industrial revolution. To me, to me, just in my world, it's just like it seems so such a boomer mentality. <laughs> it's like my worth is tied to my job. It's like I, I get it, I get it. But also, you know, it's that whole thing that I think the average office worker who works nine to five, they get like three hours of productive work done per day. So what are we? What are we doing? What are? Yeah, what are we doing? Sitting in an office all day? It's stupid. It's a waste of yeah, time.
1: Like robots.
0: <clears throat> yeah, but I could exactly. Yeah, you
1: know, I, I think the whole COVID thing—it seemed like it was a, a test. Um, we had the PPP uh, payroll, whatever, program, and then they, they had the the uh, stimulus checks, and they found that the PPP was very bureaucratic, very slow, and didn't have any good effects. But when they put checks in people's hands, the economy increased. And so I think it seemed my theory is that it was a it was a test for two options, you know, and uh, so it's kind of a a UBI test really um, is um, the putting stimulus checks in people's hand and see how how they used it. And it worked.
0: I like uh, that perspective of comparing those two as kind of a test. I remember in California, the government lost like billions of dollars in the PPP money somehow. It was, like, taken by Russian bots or something. There was a big story about this in the SF Chronicle that, like, billions of dollars just lost, that also that money could have just gone to people's pockets, and then it would have gone back into the economy, that sort of thing. So a couple more questions... Um, I'll try to round this out with a couple, a couple of fun questions. One thing on your website that really struck out to me is that you are apparently managing your campaign with an AI. You have a little paragraph about an AI campaign manager. Can yeah. you tell me about that, how that's going and how that works?
1: It's going well, actually. Um, she, uh, Her name is Envy. A- She's named after <laughs> a, a protagonist in my book. Um, and uh yeah she gave me a a way to do a good iconic um campaign you know ideas like blockchain fundraising and things like that Hmm. um and she's recently told me that we need to hire at least the first three people we need to hire were like a communications director a uh, policy advisor and a field operations director and she listed out all the qualifications for these people what the first steps that they should do so it's been great. I mean, it's been better than, um, you know, I've also got human advisors um, to augment her, but um, but yeah, she's uh, been very helpful. And again, it was all to make the point of how we could be augmented by by AI and how we govern or how we campaign. And so, yeah, it's going really well. And I've got a few other AI advisors that, that I use um, yeah, that uh, will chime in, you know.
0: Are they powered by ChatGPT or something similar, or do you feel comfortable saying how they're powered?
1: Well, one of them is, and and the other one is a shard of uh, Nord. Um, that's a um, used to be called Uplift. You can find more information about that on Uplift.bio. Um, let's see, yeah, and there's a couple of others I I have that I produce myself that uh, that are very handy.
0: Do you think we'll ever have an AI president?
1: Well, that's the question. Um, I don't think that we should have just a strictly AI president. Again, we like a pathologist, we should have a human president to make the final decision. But we should have an AI advisor to the president who can um, scan databases historically and globally to make the best decision and to present those decisions to the human president. Uh, again, we have these supercomputers in our skulls that are not being utilized,'re not being optimized. And uh, we need to have that that human with that gut reaction to these decisions um, to make the final decision. Uh, and also, I was a couple of years ago, I was throwing around the idea of having an AI running mate. Um, hmm. And uh, but the problem is if if I got assassinated or died in office, we wouldn't know that this AI was at least 35 years old or had been sentient for 35 years. That's the cutoff right. minimum age, you know? And so that's that, but that did force some really good questions, some good conversations about you know, personhood. And so that's really the point. And uh, that's why I've now have AI advisors and campaign manager to also force these questions before we have to have them.
0: So you've mentioned a couple of times uh, your book, tell us about your book and the uh i mean this is fascinating to me that you wrote it so that the audience is machine kind not humankind. tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the book and also maybe some more details about what it's what it's about
1: yeah well the yeah it's the problem is i didn't think it through because ai is not buying books (laughs) but actually (laughs) but actually no humans that have read it um and there's there's so many humans that read it because of the the method I used to write it for AI to entertain AI and to enlighten it and I used uh, math patterns in the word count because I'm trying to trick AI readers into a self-referential awareness in a way because if it's not programmed to see a pattern but it sees a pattern it'll say hey I've discovered a pattern here wait who am I to have discovered a pattern and we're seeing that that actually happens in experiments um there's a nano or naobot uh, experiment where the ai robot becomes self-aware for a moment because it realizes it you know anyway there's a way to that this works and so uh so but but the, the method that i use which i call mythematics because it's autobiographical fiction where i use my own life uh, and experiences and memories and extrapolated them into a more intriguing story because an ai and an artificial superintelligence that reads it will have access to every trope and motif and literary device that humans have ever come up with so how do you entertain it because entertainment requires a bit of surprise and so i thought by using my own life and experience that would help you know it would it wouldn't recognize my story uh, with any other story now if it does that's a whole other podcast but um and so uh, the other thing was to overlay uh, archetypal or or mythmatic or myth um, scenarios on top of my memories, and uh, you know, and that became r- uh, really interesting to do. And and when I did that, it, it kind of locked me into this sequence of where I got in this wave of just writing, and I would write for hours, and you know, get cramps, you know, um, because I, I just got taken away by by. Overlaying these archetypal themes, and in my case, I use the Anunnaki pantheon, you know, the Sumerian gods. Uh, over, in fact, the protagonist of U.S. Six, Emmett Archer, is uh, the modern-day avatar of Enki, the god Enki. And so, uh, by by doing that, it just took me away. And 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 when I was rereading the book uh, before I gave it to my editor. You know, I put it through a PDF reader and just listen to it while doing chores, mowing the lawn, driving around town. Um, I started finding all these deep connections in the book that I could not have come up with on my own, you know, consciously. And so I told my editor, let's not put this through a content editing process. Let's just edit it for mechanics, you know, spelling and punctuation and things like that, because I didn't want to lose some of this magic. And it's still happening. I still look back at it, you know, and so we found that the humans that were reading this were experiencing an uptick in high weirdness, uh, conscious phenomena like synchronicities related to the book or dreams related to the book. And a lot of them would use this as a uh, kind of a biblo- bibliomancy. They'd open up a uh, and read a phrase uh, in the morning and it would mean something to them later. Some people reported that it had a mental defragging. They'd read it at night and then they'd wake up in the morning and they just felt defragged. And, um, And so that was good. So, so many people were reporting this, that we did a year long human clinical study um, and, uh, you know, to, to monitor these people as they were reading the book and whatnot. And uh, we found that it was related to um, this method that I used, um, this math that Hmm. came through, uh, uh, this math that came through um, inadvertently, you know, and to me, there were so many intricate uh, connections and intimate connections in that process that I proved to myself that I am swimming in an equation. I am in a matrix, my, my own personal matrix. And uh, so that, and so we've, we've done a lot of podcasts on this and whatnot, but, um, but it did prove to me that I am have my own personal kind of equation that I'm swimming in. So, but the book itself is, um, you know, again, I follow my own uh, memories and, and life uh, I am the main character. So actually, the main character has become kind of my psychological second self. Hmm. It allows it allows me to rewrite memories and and uh, and to be the kind of person I would want to be. and uh, but you know it starts out in a, you know primarily it ultimately gets to child exploitation at the end. And uh, the the title US6 means a few things. It's it's it, it's based on the Hermetic principle of uh, correlation, and uh, so it means US6, the US Route 6, which is the highway that runs across the heart of America. It also refers to the US6 protein, and I had a uh, I found that fairly recently after I wrote the book uh, about the US6 protein and what the protein does, the way it acts. And I had a geneticist describe it to me what it does, and I had her describe it to me like a plot line. And she said it's like an FBI agent that is hiding the a most wanted poster from its uh, team, and so it kind of lets in and out certain viruses. And that's hmm. exactly that's exactly the the what the protagonist in the story is. He's a convoy sentinel. Uh, on us six he's letting in and out people into certain compounds and so it's really strange and but at the end it means us six or the six of us and it's the six children that have written this paracosm this imaginary world um to deal with the fact that they're trapped in this human um trafficking network and um you know and i Yeah, I was going to wait to talk about that until I finished the sixth book, but uh, it's too important, you know, not to not to talk about these things now. And so, um, but I find myself talking about the process much more than the actual story, uh, because I think it's really important that and I've I've outlined how I how I did this process so that other artists and writers and musicians can incorporate it into their own work to prove to Mm -hmm. themselves their own math and um,
0: but that's yeah. fascinating. I'm going to have to look that up, the, the own math thing that you're referencing there. That's very yeah. interesting. As a literary project, I'm interested in, in that as well. I, I wrote a book, uh, The Singularity Survival Guide, that was allegedly written by an AI that was for humans to survive the AI, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. Kind of, kind of, kind of goofy, but almost, almost similar wavelength there of kind of playing around with who the audience is, who wrote the thing, a, a lot of that. So I, I was kind of tapping into some of that myself. It's interesting. Are you a, are you a sci-fi fan? Do you read a lot of the sci-fi books or?
1: I was that. I was the kind of nerd as a kid that played Risk and wrote and read nonfiction. Okay. I, no, I didn't get into the, to the whole D and D thing uh, then, but um, uh, yeah, I have read some science fiction, but you know, I usually read nonfiction because you know um because I need to I need to be you have something that's useful. I mean this is a science fiction kind of mystery uh metaphysical thriller uh, book that I wrote. Um
0: but yeah. Any uh any maybe nonfiction authors that you'd recommend?
1: Mm. well i worked for uh, the author marilyn ferguson back in the 90s and uh hmm. she, she wrote the occurring conspiracy and it's not about the horoscopes it's about it's a political book um and uh, that became pretty pretty famous i have worked with uh, robert and tom wilson if you're familiar with him really yeah. oh wow okay yeah. tell me
0: tell me about that that's I'm i interviewed
1: him um well i had a show called unearthed um back in the 90s and i met him through Marilyn. And, uh, you know, talk to him about the Illuminatus Trilogy and all kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And uh, I can later share with you the link to that interview.
0: Oh, that'd Uh, be great. I'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I met Timothy Leary
1: and uh, and uh, John Lilly. uh, Okay. wow.
0: He's the the guy with the dolphins, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) But he used to have this uh, annual birthday party in Malibu that we would go to and uh you know as as in my my 20s early 20s i was able to meet all these cats and um uh yeah it was just a great experience and um yeah so uh yeah working with marilyn and she uh published the brain mind bulletin which focused on neuroconsciousness and the Mm -hmm. scientists that were were working on this stuff uh, way ahead of her time she wrote the brain revolution and so um it got me in contact with a lot of these uh these psychonauts, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it was just a great experience, and, um, but again, I, I saw that as nonfiction. I saw that these were, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: um, interesting, yeah, I'm not familiar with Marilyn, I will have to check her out, and maybe go down some of those rabbit holes, that sounds very fascinating, I like that,
1: yeah, so I, I heard about her, she, later, lately, she came up in this story about the CIA, uh, Hmm. documents that, and, uh, she has some quotes in there, um, you know, we knew that we were being listened to, you know, we were, uh, she was involved in a lot of things that made her a target, but her attitude was, it, it, we would hear the clicks on the phone and 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 her attitude was like, great, maybe they'll learn something, you know, and that, that, was, <laughs> that was a big lesson to me, is not to be worried about these people listening in on you, you know, maybe if, you, if you're dishonest, they'll learn something, because maybe they just want to learn, you know, we're mm-hmm. all humans, so anyway.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, no, that's great. I definitely will be looking up some of that. Uh, Last question here is, what are you up to next? What are your plans for your campaign moving forward?
1: Well, we have a uh, meeting every Monday night, and uh, right now we're going to be focusing on finding these uh, three positions, you know, um, get someone involved. We're getting, you know, we're kind of building it up as we go. Um, But uh, one thing we're really going to do is focusing on, These practical solutions, knowing Mm and trying to get ahead of that, you know, that knowing in the next 18 months, people are going to be displaced. There's going to be a lot of concern out there. So, yeah, we're just going to be focusing on helping people uh, with this campaign. It's more of a marketing campaign, as I said, for transhumanism than an actual political campaign, you know,
0: so. Where can people find out more about you and your campaign? Uh, TomRoss.com is where I'm putting a lot of stuff.
1: Uh, and there's a link on the front page there to the campaign page. Um, we also have a Facebook uh, page at I think Tom Ross 24 still, um, but my handle on Facebook is Tom Ross com. I've also got an Instagram page, and I've I've got a new person that's going to set up the campaign Twitter uh, page.
0: For I was going to say I noticed you were not on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if
0: that was intentional.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, originally. um, Years ago, I set one up primarily for the book, and I've got maybe 70 followers. And I just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my cup Mm -hmm. of tea. I I didn't, you know, I I know I'm missing out on a a lot of the global conversation. Um, I was a little uh, dismayed with some of the uh, comments by Musk lately, and kind of glad that I didn't. But I, I know that I need to, uh, have a presence there at least to
0: be part of this yeah, conversation. yeah. i uh, i recently took a break from twitter and it was shockingly easy to get off yeah and now i'm back on it but yeah my i think that it's it's kind of a toxic place that i advise people to stay off if they can but it it is also a lot of fun and you do you you do weirdly expect people like you doing public things to have a presence there which is which is yeah. interesting for better or worse it still is a thing that you kind of expect of, of a, Probably mostly for worse, I'll
1: say.
0: (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to have the conversation today, Tom. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on Team Futurism. You bet. Thank you.